6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapters 5 and 6. Father, we thank you for the evening. We thank you for the joy of these letters. We thank you that you've moved Paul to write these letters, not just to Timothy, but to us. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, we might indeed learn the lessons you have here for us as we commit this evening and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are studying 1 Timothy, and we're in chapters 5 and 6. And as you know, there are a number of epistles in the New Testament, Romans and Hebrews being the pivotal ones, the pillars of it. But we have seven that were written to churches, and three of those were called the prison epistles. And then we have these peculiar ones called pastoral epistles, where Paul is writing to his protégés. They usually include Philemon in that group. We conclude Philemon when we study Colossians for some other reasons. So we're looking at First and Second Timothy and Titus in this group of pastoral epistles. I want to remind ourselves that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is by the inspiration of God. That term in Greek means God breathed. We need to really understand that. Let's try to maintain an awe regarding God's Word, because it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. For doctrine, that just simply means what is really true. That's what it really means. What's right? For reproof, that's what's not right. When we get off, reproof is to get us corrected, how to get it right. And, of course, how to stay right, instruction. And so that's... Uh, a pivotal verse in the whole group, 2 Timothy 3.16, easy to remember because of John 3.16, it's a very key verse. Okay, we last time talked about the apostasy that was coming. Now we're going to, in these two final chapters of this first epistle, we're going to uh, deal with the duties of the officers of the church. Now the church has many labels, and it's called a holy nation in 1 Peter 2, which emphasized the believer's citizenship in heaven in effect. It's called a kingdom in Revelation 5, emphasizing the believer's common submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So in that sense, we're members of that kingdom. It's a priesthood, emphasizing the privilege that all believers have of direct access to God. Every one of us, all, all you men, are high priests of your family. So you have a priesthood that you need to be aware of and, be, and deal with seriousness. The church is called the vine, emphasizing the believer's common connection to the life of God to bear fruit. The purpose of the vine is to bear fruit. That's our purpose also. Church is also called a temple, emphasizing that it's built upon the solid foundation of the apostles' doctrine with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And uh, it's a, um, also called a body, emphasizing the, the common life and dependence on our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also called an assembly. In fact, ecclesia, the term, the Greek term means that. It emphasizes the common calling to be gathered into the eternal presence of God. 
It's called a flock, of course, a common need to be led and fed by a shepherd. It's called a family, emphasizing the intimacy, care and openness and love. These are all terms that are used. But the key thing is a verse that Jesus gave us in John 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have sound doctrine. Is that what it says? No. That if you have love for one another. Exactly right. But a strange, that's a strange verse. Something very weird about that verse. You see it? A new commandment. I thought that's a command, that's a commandment was given way back there. What do you mean a new commandment I've given you? What do you mean by a new commandment? See, the Greeks had two different words for new. Neos, meaning new in time. This is the latest model kind of thing. Or kenos, which means new in quality. Something that is new in the sense that it's radically different is the idea of kenos. And that's what's being used here. The commandment to love one another is not new in time, but is new in character. In Christ, it now takes on a whole new meaning. It's new in emphasis. It's new in example. 1 John 2, 7 and 8. And new in experience. So 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 11 will amplify that for those of you who want to dig into that. Now, Timothy has been ministering at Ephesus. Tough turf. It's not an easy ministry, but I don't know of any ministries that are easy. The sinning members had abandoned truth and godliness. That's the spiritual family at Ephesus, we find. Some had shipwrecked their faith, we found, in the first chapter. Some women had abandoned their proper role and were trying to usurp the function of men. That was in the second chapter. Some men were aspiring to leadership without adequate qualifications. Have you ever run into that before? Chapter 3 and chapter 5 will deal with that. Some were teaching demonic false doctrines. You find that too if you know, where to if you know how to watch for it. Impure lives were evident among some of the older widows and some of the younger, both. Ephesus was not an easy place to minister. But I'd like to ask the question, is any place really easy? I don't think so. The word discipline comes up. That's what a disciple really means, someone given to discipline. In the Old Testament, it's all through the Old Testament. It leads to understanding. It leads to knowledge. It leads to wisdom. It leads to honor. It leads to happy life. D discipline. Obviously, amply taught all through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we could spend a lot of time badgering this concept of discipleship or being, a dis being disciplined. The purpose of discipline is to save the offender. Sin needs to be dealt with because it disrupts the intimacy of a family. So discipline is crucial. So let's just jump in. 1 Timothy 5 it says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. See, apparently there was a temptation to ignore the older members. Love and serve all, regardless of ages. And not show partiality. That's what he, he's going to talk more about that before this chapter's over. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Very early concern was expressed in the book of Acts. Old Testament had all kinds of legislation in this regard. All kinds of special care. I won't take the time here to detail all this. You can dig it out in, in your references. They'll be in the notes, of course. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews... Let them first to show piety at home, and then to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. In other words, don't be a burden on the church. This is really a reflection, verse 3 there is a reflection of the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. The word nephews here, by the way, doesn't mean nephews, it means descendants. They didn't have 
the kind of vocabulary we use. There's no word like nephew or grandchildren. They use the word, a word that simply means descendants, members of the family, in effect. Now, she that is widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. So we're talking here in the first verse, if they're a widow indeed, that is without human support. They're in the fellowship without human support. That's what he's really trying to instruct him, that the widow that was a widow indeed without help, she was a burden then on the fellowship. That was the concept they operate under here. And uh, so, and uh, that uh, these things give charge that they may be blameless. That is not idle gossip and so forth. Now, if any provide not for his own, this is, now this verse is one to jot down and think about. It's a toughie. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Oh, wait a minute here. This is Paul talking. This isn't one of my flippant remarks that I often make and then regret later. No, this is Paul writing Timothy. If somebody isn't providing for his family... He's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Wow. That should make every one of us uncomfortable, us guys. That our obligation to our family is something we're aware of, but had we realized how important that is, worse than an infidel. That's pretty worse. That's a very sobering injunction indeed. Worse than an infidel. We need to be providers. We need to find a way. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. Taken in that number, that means to be enrolled or put, in, put on the list, used for the enrollment. It's a term that was used for mustering soldiers and so on. Well reported of for good works, if she have been brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. That's what he's talking about. Pretty impressive person. Dorcas and her widow friends are examples in Acts 9 and others. There's a definite connection between idleness and sin. Interesting project to link those up from the scripture. But the younger widows refuse. For when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And with all, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but tattlers and also and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now, I realize none of you know of any of those kinds, so we'll just move on. Huh? I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You know... There are people today that forego having children because of the awfulness of the times today. They should compare our times with Paul's days. We think our times are bad. It was worse then in some respects. Guide the house, it says. How do you do that? Read Proverbs 31. It lays it out. Describes my wife, by the way, but that's okay. Each marriage partner has a special sphere of activity. And the word occasion is a military term that means a base of operations. They give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. 
The word is interesting term because it's a military term which means like a base of operations. Your adversary is looking to attack. For some are already turned aside after Satan, he advises here. Satan is always alert to invade and destroy a home. It's interesting to realize how the world at large is trying to attack God's institutions. The marriage, the home, God's order. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. In other words, he's saying if the widow has family to support, that they should step up to that so the church deals with those that don't have family, in other words. Widows indeed. There are widows who are without families, what he means by that phrase. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. That's an interesting verse. That implies that it's appropriate to have incentive payments. Let elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. It's speaking of pay. That's interesting. Not, not are all necessarily equal. It's, it's as they merit. Elders were chosen, ordained, and set aside for work. We see that in Acts 14, 20, and elsewhere. The word honor there means honorarium. Double means generous pay. Interesting. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. He's quoting scripture here. In Deuteronomy 25 and 1 Corinthians 9 and elsewhere. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. One of the biggest shocks I've had as a student of management, as, as I say, spent 30 years in the corporate boardrooms, one of the biggest shocks I've seen in the body of Christ is how many churches are run on hearsay, where people are attacked behind their backs. There's never a hearing to determine the facts. And people find them, their, their, their character assassinated, their, their, their uh, positions of responsibility abrogated to others without any due process. And uh, I was almost going to do a briefing pack on this because I found a great case to use because most of the cases I'm aware of would, would re, re, uh, involve confidentiality. I'm not free to talk about some of the things I know about. But there was a very public situation down in Orange County and a law school, where the dean of the law school was accused by a student, and he was um, relieved of his job before an investigation was conducted. And the dean, that, the, the super dean that did all that, stupidly said so to the paper. He'd been removed, and he said, our investigation isn't finished yet. He didn't realize what he was saying, and the guy sued him for $10 million. And I thought, this is great, because I, I had the whole file of the whole story, Here's a law school, a Christian law school, that felt that Matthew 18 was for others, not for us, you know, because that we're, the, we're, the, we're not the laity, you know, really nonsense. And I was going to make it, except it turned out there was other unrelated background factors that I couldn't use it as a case study. But, but it's, a, it's really tragic how many churches within the innards of them operate on hearsay rather than having an elder who's being accused, be accused before two or three witnesses with some kind of due process. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. First of all, you want to be sure of the facts, but there also should be due process. You want to do everything openly. 
You don't want to receive an accusation unless there's a willingness to bring in two or three witnesses and have it heard and resolved, not lurking in the hallways. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. So, laying on of hands, by the way, is a term indicating a partnership in ministry. You lay on hands on someone to send them off in ministry. You're participating in whatever the result is, good or bad. So be cautious, he's saying. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and for thine often infirmities. So how many people use this to enjoy a glass of wine? Thank you, Paul. You've done many, many people a big favor here. Abstinence is not required, but still there's no excuse for abuse or immoderation in anything, not just wine, anything. Let your moderation be known to all men. I'm very moderate with my moderation. I'm being facetious, okay. I want to tell you something about this subject that you might find useful. There are three principal feasts of the Jews that correspond to the three harvest seasons. The first is the Feast of Passover that occurs on the 14th of Nisan, which is in the spring. It's usually around our April, give or take, at the time of the barley harvest, Ruth 1. The second one is the Feast of Pentecost, which occurs seven weeks later at the wheat harvest. Okay? The third is the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the year, September, October, on our calendar. That's during the fruit harvest. Get this in your mind. Passover, barley harvest. Pentecost, wheat harvest. Tabernacles, the fruit harvest. Grapes are fruit. They're harvested in the fall, right? Okay. What that means is there's no time that they can get grape juice except in the fall. There's no refrigeration. If you're going to pick grapes, you've got grape juice if you want it. But you better drink it pretty quick. Unless you've got an icebox, right? You follow me? How does grape juice naturally preserve itself? By fermentation. Right? So let's roll around to Passover. What did they serve in the Lord's Supper? Wine. That comes as a shock to a lot of people who are used to taking communion with grape juice. Now, I'm not knocking that because there are people that have alcoholic problems for to whom a little cup of wine might be hazardous. I understand that. So I'm not disparaging the practice, but I think it's useful to understand what we're doing. If you're going to be scriptural, you're going to drink wine, you know. Remember in the Old Testament, the manna that fell from which they made manna pancakes and Manna bread and manna shevets and okay. all right, all right, never mind. Okay. I'm being facetious. There's no grape juice available during the celebration of Passover. That's just a fact of nature because they had no refrigeration. I mention that only because there are people that have these elaborate scholarly papers that try to make the wine grape juice that ignore that that. All kinds of exegetical, they're bizarre because they have no grasp of all of basic agriculture in, in Israel. In, 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 anyway. Onward. 1 Timothy 5, verse 24. 
making good progress here. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. That's interesting. So we're to one last chapter, last chapter of the, this epistle. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and this doctrine be not blasphemed. Now the economy in those days was slavery. And we need to understand, so when we hear servants and slaves, we, or masters, we tend to ignore that. That was just their economic structure. We have the same thing. We're slaves too. We're wage slaves. Let's set aside some of the other issues. Some of their slaves were probably better treated than some of our employees are treated. So don't pass judgments here without doing some homework. And servants here are slaves. It basically applies to employment. 50% of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. That's why Constantine found it so shrewd to make Christianity a, uh, a legal involvement. It didn't make it a state religion. The second successor after did that. But he did, make it, he did legalize it. That allowed, because over half the slaves were Christians. That was a big chunk of the demographics. And many of these slaves were educated, cultured, but they weren't treated as persons, was where the abuse is involved. Now, the, our new freedom in Christ should not be used as an excuse to disobey, defy, or, de, or defy authority. In fact, it's the other way around, by the way. If you're an employee, just an, a rank, an hourly employee of an of a employer, you owe that employer 60 minutes for every hour paid, right? If you are a manager of that enterprise, you owe the boss a fiduciary relationship. You, you have a commitment to protect the business, its assets, its intellectual property, all those kinds of things. If you're an hourly, you don't have those obligations. You just, you just owe him 60 minutes for every hour paid, unless you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, Ephesians 6 talks about the fact that you are to be a fiduciary, a koinonos of that employer. So an average employee doesn't owes, what he owes the boss is a, limited, is a limited package. If you're a Christian, you owe the boss your wholehearted support. That's more than a non-believer requires, is required. So your, new, your freedom in Christ should not only be, should not be an excuse to disobey or defy authority. Quite the contrary, it encumbers you with a fiduciary relationship to your employer. And you need to research that and understand what that means. Let's go on. Verse 2. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If you've got a believing master, you don't, you don't take advantage of them. You get just that much better deal, right? So it's interesting that nowhere in the New Testament that I'm aware of do they speak out against the institutional aspects of slavery, per se. That would have been disruptive and would have hindered the gospel. Now that's interesting. There's a very, very prominent minister. Had a fantastic ministry, coast to coast. But also was a tax protester. And we tried to tell him as friends, he's wasting his time. It's not that he's right or wrong. That's not the issue. You want to pick your battles. He chose to not pay his taxes, and he's now 10 years in prison, and his ministry is in jeopardy because he didn't pay his taxes. 
If you study the, remember the incident where they came to Christ because there was a tax due? And he asked Peter, he says, who is it, is it due? Is it the residents or the strangers? It's the strangers. Well, they're not the residents. He says, nevertheless, go get a fish and get the coin and pay the tax anyway. Everybody knows the story of the coin and the fish. Read it carefully. They're paying a tax they didn't have to. Why? Keep the peace. They're smart. Why get in the hassle? Get him a coin. Give him a coin that's over with. If my friend, who's presently in prison, had paid his taxes, his very unique outreach in the area of creation and, and, and anti-evolution and all that sort of thing uh, was phenomenal. And yet he's now in prison. Important. One must be careful in picking your battles. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine of which is according to guidance, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, wherewith cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, and other things. There are issues that are important. There are also issues that are just divisive, unnecessarily unproductive. Constantly monitor what is being taught. And always monitor the fruit that it produces. Pride is often the badge of a false teacher. There are people on their radio. If I ask you, who would you feel has earned the title of Mr. Arrogance? And probably most of you can think of a name that speaks mountains just in and of itself. The lack of humility. The guy that has the answer for everybody. Be careful. Pride is often the badge of a false teacher. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. From such withdraw thyself. I have declined to enter into any debates with those types. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.